Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, July 22nd, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So we are just days away from the opening of an antitrust trial focused on publishing. The Department of Justice's bid to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of its rival Big Five publisher, Simon & Schuster. In Monday's issue of PW, you have all the latest developments. So, yeah, there have been a flurry of filings in the U.S. Department of Justice's high-profile bid to block the world's largest English-language trade publisher, Penguin Random House, from acquiring its big five rival, uh, Simon & Schuster, all ahead of what promises to be a very high-profile trial, which is now set to begin on August 1st uh, before Judge Florence Y. Pan at the E. Barrett Prettyman Courthouse in Washington, D.C. This week's filings included things like witness lists. The list includes Stephen King on behalf of the government, so that's interesting, as well as all of the big five CEOs and a host of agents and editors, And no doubt, Penguin Random House lawyers are going to try to teach the government a thing or two about how book publishing works. Uh, The trial overall is is expected to run about three weeks. Uh, There's 72 total hours allotted for arguments, uh, very common in these trials, 38 hours for the government, 34 hours for the defense. Uh, And in addition, there are a couple of motions out there to exclude certain arguments and certain evidence. On the publisher side, for example, Penguin Random House is asking the court to bar the Department of Justice from litigating the merged firm's control of printing capacity, for example. And the DOJ wants to bar the court from considering Penguin Random House's promise to allow Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster editors to continue to bid each other against each other, I should say, post-merger. The DOJ says that since that's just like a self-imposed promise, uh, it's voluntary, that it's not enforceable, and therefore it would be uh, a distraction for the court. Uh, Suffice it to say, this is a very closely watched case and holds major implications, uh, both for the publishing industry that's been grappling with consolidation for years, and it is also a key test for the government amid growing calls for more vigilant antitrust enforcement. And it follows a 2018 uh, defeat in the government's bid to block the massive $108 billion merger between AT&T and Time Warner. And you can remind us, Andrew, of what the basis of the government's case is. Sure. So at its core, the government's case, it really revolves around a single issue. And that issue is size. You know, if if allowed to acquire Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House would be, and I'll quote the government's complaint here, by far the largest book publisher in the United States, quote, towering over its rivals. Indeed, its revenues would be more than double its next closest competitor. Uh, And with that kind of scale, uh, DOJ attorneys argue the publisher would hold outsized influence over who and what is published and how much authors are paid for their work, all in violation of Section 7 of the Clayton Act. Now, the case is a little unusual because it's a monopsony case rather than a monopoly case. And a quick refresher, a monopoly occurs when one firm becomes the dominant, usually the sole supplier of a good or service. And monopsony, on the other hand, is when one firm becomes the sole or dominant buyer of goods and services. Both are illegal. 
Both are anti-competitive. And in fact, you know, the publishing world is already pretty familiar with monopsony, right? Because this is what Amazon was accused of in the early days of the ebook market and what prompted five of the big six publishers at the time to coordinate with Apple to move the ebook market to agency pricing in 2010. So the publishing industry is not necessarily unfamiliar with monopsony. But what does monopsony look like here in this case? Well, in this action, the government argues that the relevant market is, and I'll quote them again, content acquisition. In other words, book rights. And allowing Penguin Random House, which again is already the largest U.S. publisher by a wide margin, to swallow up one of its major competitors for book rights would negatively impact author advances, the government argues. And while author advances at all levels would be impacted, the government says, this deal will especially harm the advances of a small subset of mega best-selling authors, which the government has defined as anticipated top-selling books. And such a reduction in author compensation is likely to lead to fewer authors being able to make a living from writing, the government alleges, and fewer and less diverse books being published. So that's the main thrust here. Although there are other concerns too, such as allowing one player to tower over its next closest competitor in an already concentrated publishing industry makes it easier for things like collusion or coordination to happen. Uh, The government notes that these publishers actually have a history of collusion, ahem, the Apple case. And it's, you know, the industry is already very concentrated. So with fewer players, a big four, and an obvious leader in Penguin Random House, which would be more than double the size of its next closest competitor, uh, these publishers would likely find it easier to reach and sustain some sort of consensus that might also harm authors through whatever coordination. For example, uh, an obvious leader might set a policy that the other publishers could follow over time, such as tacitly agreeing to extract a broader scope of rights in negotiations, you know, say goodbye to North American rights, we're going for world rights only. Or, for example, another example the government raises here is if Penguin Random House started paying out advances in smaller increments or over longer periods of time, other publishers might find that uh, working to their advantage too and go along with it. And almost as an afterthought, too, the complaint notes that Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster also have substantial distribution businesses to consider. Uh, The merged firm would have even greater control over distribution, the complaint states, and that would give it more power over competitors, and it would allow Penguin Random House to sort of raise competitors' costs or other barriers to entry or repositioning. But I have to say that strikes me almost as an afterthought in this suit, and I'm not really sure how that's going to play out at trial. And what about the defendants, Andrew? Penguin Random House, how do they plan to counter the charges? In its answer, Penguin Random House attorneys are going straight at the government's monopsony claims. They highlight the fact that the DOJ isn't alleging any meaningful reduction in in competition here or in retail competition or any real consumer injury, which is what courts are used to seeing. Instead, uh, Penguin Random House attorneys argue the DOJ is pinning their case entirely on this concept of lowering author advances. And they actually invent this market for anticipated top-selling books, PRH lawyers say. Uh, And that lacks any basis either in the real world or in any previously accepted market definition analysis. In sum, the DOJ's case, according to Penguin Random House, wrongly defines the market, it mischaracterizes all the different participants, and it miscalculates market shares, primarily because... And this is kind of the key here, the key to Penguin Random House's case, because the government just doesn't understand how the book rights market works. And really, that's it in a nutshell. 
government doesn't get it. They don't understand how publishing works. Like books themselves, Penguin Random House attorneys are going to argue that book deals are very much individualized and that winning bids are subject to a myriad of factors in addition to price. The terms that are all managed closely by an author's agent, an agent who usually is a sophisticated player in this market. And after the merger, the market dynamic between authors and agents and Penguin Random House and all its competitors is going to be the same, Penguin Random House argues. Authors are still going to have a vast array of buyers to bid on their work, including the remaining big four publishers, other media heavyweights like Disney and Amazon and Scholastic. Uh, you got imprints like Norton and Abrams. And then there's what PRH lawyers call new entrants like Zando. In addition... They go on to say that, you know, hey, Simon & Schuster, this is actually going to be pro-competitive, right? You know, they're going to po they point to the 2013 merger between Penguin and Random House, which made Penguin Random House. And all the data they have from that showed that the U.S. trade market actually expanded substantially. Uh, the competition for book rights actually intensified. And in fact, the smaller publishers actually gained retail market share from the big five. In previous conversations about the case, Andrew, you told me that PRH has a good chance of seeing the SNS deal move forward. Has your thinking changed at all? You know, so much of the evidence in this case has been filed under seal, so it's really hard to know what to expect. But I did reach out to one of my most trusted legal experts, Cleveland Marshall College uh, law professor Chris Sager. He's an antitrust expert and the author of the 2019 book, United States versus Apple, Competition in America. And he helped me work through some very interesting things. He had some very interesting observations. In his estimation, if the evidence is there, which is a big if, and if they can avoid getting sucked down some of the rabbit holes that are clearly going to make up the defense's rebuttal, Sakers believes that the government actually has a reasonable chance of winning. But again, I'll emphasize, those are big ifs. And, and Sagers concedes this. Again, most of the evidence, as I said, has been filed under seal. So who knows what it's going to show. And there are some deeper conceptual issues with the government's case, Sagers acknowledges, largely stemming from its reliance on the alleged harm the deal poses to authors, especially these big best-selling authors, rather than on any harm to consumers. And you know that's because courts are usually more open to arguments that focus on consumer injury. And if the government finds itself before a court that really thinks that there has to be at least some evidence of consumer injury here, then the government may find itself in a position to have to argue that consumers are ultimately injured here because there might be a few less books by Jackie Collins or James Patterson. And that, Sager says, is going to really invite some hard questions uh, about whether that kind of loss, even if you can prove it, is a legally relevant injury. At the same time, on its face, this is clearly a heavily consolidating horizontal merger in an already really concentrated market, Sagers points out. And that this is a monopsony case, you know, it's not really so unusual. But what is nominally unusual, he says, is that regulators generally have not challenged these kinds of deals unless they have left three or fewer major firms in the relevant market. And in this deal, theoretically, there would be four until you consider the size of Penguin Random House post-merger. As we've said before, this deal really kind of leaves a big one, not a big four. Uh, and then I don't know what you call the rest, the medium three, you know, <laughs> the grandes to PRH's venti, I guess. I don't know. The, the point is, is that the actual size of one of the big four here really does matter. And courts and agencies, Sagers point out, don't measure the legality of mergers by counting up the raw number of firms. If there's their four or is there three, they measure concentration 
vision using a tool called the Hirschman Herfindahl Index or the HHI, which gives extra weight to firms that are substantially larger than their competitors. And there's no question, Sager says, that a post-merger Penguin Random House would register a very large HHI number. But is that enough to block the deal in the absence of, you know, harder evidence about author advances being impacted and consumer injury? And it's unclear. Uh, Sagers would not take a position. He says this is a 50-50 case. It's a coin flip to him. Now, I personally am leaning a little bit more towards Penguin Random House, if I'm being honest. And it's because of its attorney, Daniel Petroselli, who did an excellent job of defeating the government in the AT&T case, which was viewed as sort of an uphill battle. Now, that case was different from this case in many respects, but the legal strategy seems to be very relevant here. The government is going to present its view of the market, and Petroselli is just going to poke that view of the market full of holes. And you know, given the idiosyncrasies of publishing, I just feel like this defense is so primed to work, and Petroselli is clearly the guy to do it, no question. At the same time, I also feel like it's going to be hard to overlook the sheer size of a post-merger Penguin Random House. So I I honestly, Chris, I have no idea how this case is going to turn out, but I will be there at least for the first week of the trial and, you know, get your popcorn because I really do anticipate a fascinating case. Well, Andrew, lucky you, a courtroom in Washington, D.C. in August. (laughs) It's going to be a hot one for sure. It'll be hot in so many ways. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. Thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020, sociologist Dana Weinberg collaborated on a complex survey looking for patterns of discrimination among book readers. Subjects were presented with mocked up book covers and descriptions from fiction and nonfiction genres. There's two potential sides to the story. One potential is that publishers are just discriminatory against women, against people of color, and they don't give those voices their due. And on the other side of it, there's sort of a rational actor argument to be made, which is that this is really about the consumer market and what consumers are willing to buy. At the end of the day, publishers want to make money. And so if they believe that the public is not going to buy books by Black authors or female authors or young authors, then those books are not going to get accepted for publication or promoted with the same kind of of budget. And so we were trying to understand how much was coming from the publishers um, and and what was really going on with the general public in terms of their attitudes towards different kinds of authors. Do book consumers discriminate against Black, female, or young authors? Coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Kinneley. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.